turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll read the entire chapter here. 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Connecting what we saw this morning to what I intend to bring this afternoon, I want to specifically note uh, in verse 5, love is, I'm sorry, verse 4, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. I am in the habit on Sunday mornings, I have been reading through Jerry Bridges' book, The Pursuit of Godliness, and last Sunday I read his chapter on humility, and in thinking on that, I thought that this afternoon I would seek to bring some thoughts on that subject to us today. It will be a, you could say, 20,000 foot view of the subject. It is indeed a subject that many messages, in fact, series of messages, could be delivered and not exhaust it. But I hope today that. In my overview, thoughts that I had and thinking on it will bring some benefit to each of us and that God may target applications of this overview that are necessary and profitable for each of us where we are. And I think it is useful to contemplate that this is just one aspect of love. Love towards God, love towards others, as we have seen we are required from this morning's message. I think that when I speak of humility, we probably each would think of multiple different verses throughout the Bible uh, that speak to this subject, because it is indeed one we see from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between. Today I'll look at this topic under two headings, 
They are loose and have much overlap, but my two headings will be the just causes for our humility and the right directions of our humility. So first, the just causes for our humility. I think the idea of humility is one that we see by and large is foreign to the world and especially foreign in our country and in our day and age. Seems the opposite is true. What the individual, what an individual thinks, feels, is now given preeminence. It must be respected, or should I say, we are told we must accept what an individual thinks or believes. Self has become number one. But we as Christians must be characterized by a spirit that is opposite to this, a spirit of humility. Turn with me back to Job chapter 38. Job 38. And here we have God beginning to speak to Job. Verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you understand. Here we have the first just cause for humility. We could continue to read on through chapter 38 and on into chapter 39. God asks Job question after question that emphasizes that he is God and we are man. But here in this first question, God points out the simple fact that he created all things. If he created all things, we are part of those all things, and he is the creator, and we are the creature. Now, if you were to subscribe to the theory of evolution, which many do, we see here why it might be appealing. Because if you subscribe to the theory of evolution, then we as man are at the top of the mountain. We've made it. We have overcome monumental challenges in virtually every area of life. We are the top of the food chain. Why do we have cause to be humble? But you see, that is not the case. We face Today, the fact that we are the creature, and we have to answer to a creator. Isaiah 45, verse 9 says, Shall the clay say to him who formed it, What are you making? We don't get to question God. If you think, well, that's not really fair. I didn't have a say in it. Isaiah 64, verse 8 says, But now... O Lord, you are our Father. 
We are the clay, and you are potter, and all we are the work of your hand. You see, this is not something we should reject. It is something we should rejoice in, that we are the creature, and we have a creator that is our heavenly father, a perfect father. Think of the love that we spoke of this morning that our God has poured out on us. This is the creator God that we serve, that we are to be humble before. This cause for a heart of humility is compounded by another fact. That is the fact that we have rebelled against our Father and our Creator. And that truth is compounded by the fact that our Father sent His Son to redeem us. How is it that the Creator would stoop to such lengths to save His rebellious creation? One would rightly observe that such rebellion at such a cosmic level, you would rightly expect the Creator to unleash unmitigated judgment and destruction. One single act of rebellion would justify such judgment, would it not? An honest assessment of the repeated, consistent rebellion of all mankind can leave us in a state of nothing short of absolute wonder and amazement that God has stayed and continues to stay his judgment. Now, if God had stopped there at simply staying his judgment, we would rightfully humble ourselves before him. But as I said, he didn't. He provided a way of salvation for us. The lengths to which God went to secure that salvation were absolutely staggering. The Son of Man, the Son of God, would humble himself to do so. He would take on the form of the creature. He was born a baby absolutely incapable of doing anything, dependent solely on his mother. And he was born in a low estate. One might suppose that if God was to take on human form, he might be at least born to royalty, live in luxury, but not our Savior. His life was not one of ease and riches. And definitely not so once he became his, began his public ministry. He was despised and mocked. He was ridiculed and attacked at every turn. He often chose the company of those that society shunned. And he was ridiculed for it. His humiliation reached the pinnacle. He was nailed to that Roman cross. Horrible 
despised form of execution reserved for the worst of criminals. Hung there for three hours, suffering unimaginable pain, mocked by the crowds that had gathered to witness the spectacle, and worst of all, forsaken by his father. It's hard to even get your mind around that. That is what it took for our salvation. Son had to become sin. And the father could have no other response than the full wrath and judgment that was due to us. When we consider such a work, such lengths were undertaken for our salvation. Humility is the only right and just response. There could be many other examples given for us to be humble. When we look at all our failings, even in the world's terms, which of us has done anything amazing, worthy of note, worthy of honor and respect? When we compare ourselves even to others around us, we will see all our shortcomings. Well, I want to focus the rest of our time here on the right directions of our humility, and I've already begun to allude to them, but let me pause and uh, here and give us a definition for humility. And I Turn to Jonathan Edwards in his book, Charity and Its Fruits, which is drawn from his messages on 1 Corinthians 13. He says, Humility may be defined to be a habit of mind and heart corresponding to our comparative unworthiness and vileness before God or or a sense of our own comparative meanness in his sight with the disposition to a behavior answerable thereto. Simply, it is holding a right and accurate view of the greatness of God and a right and accurate view of, to use Edward's words, the meanness, the lowness of ourselves, our sinfulness, our weakness, our desperate condition. This is not just shrugging off compliments and making self-deprecating comments. That's not what we're referring to here. Let me also make a note that every sin ultimately is a sin of pride and thus underscoring the importance of a heart of humility. Sin is a rejection of God's true nature and a rejection of our true nature. I have found being a parent, it's been a humbling experience as I have seen in my children an example of Myself before God. 
I have two young children, as I think all of you know. And there have been those times where I have made a statement or given my children a command. And they have responded and contradicted me directly. And there have been those times where that contradiction hasn't even been one where there's angry or nastiness. They just think that they know differently than me. I will make an observation of fact and they'll say, no, Daddy, it's this. And you stand there and I am 10 plus times older than them. And you wonder at the silliness of it. But then you wonder at the foolishness of us not obeying our God, of us disagreeing with God about the way things work. You see, even those respectable sins, as I think it's Jerry Bridges has a book titled, those sins that don't seem that bad are still sins of pride. Sometimes our sin takes the form of a temper tantrum and a child screaming, no. Sometimes it takes the form of us saying, no. I don't think it actually works that way. Both of which are pride, the absence of the right heart attitude of humility. If we keep an accurate view of who God is and who man is, we will be desperate to learn more of who God is and what he requires us requires of us. We will forsake our own wisdom because we will recognize that our own wisdom is actually foolishness. We will seek to do the will of our Father as our Savior did. Because we will know that our Father gives us wise and good and loving commands for us to follow. We ought to humbly stand before our God being those who have experienced his great mercy. And if you sit here and you do not believe, I'm sorry, if you sit here and you believe that there is a righteous, holy God whom you have sinned against, and you continue to draw breath, you have cause to humble yourself before him at this very moment. You have cause Confess your sinful and wretched state and humble yourself before the Savior of sinners. Any other response is self-righteous pride. You stand with the Pharisee that prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not as other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. On the list goes. Presumptuous pride. 
We measure ourselves against other men because that is easy. Because that makes us feel good about ourselves. We have missed the point. We have to measure ourselves against what God requires of us. Against the life that our Savior led. When we compare ourselves to Him, we will have no cause for pride. We will have no cause for boasting. His standard of righteousness is the standard that we all will be judged against. We here who have bowed the knee to King Jesus, who have prayed as that tax collector, God be merciful to me a sinner. How is it that so often pride flares up within us still? How is it that we look around and we are thankful that we are not as other men? Only good in us is because of what he has done. We love because he first loved us. Our God brought us to the end of ourselves. We have seen our depravity, not fully, not rightly, but we have gotten a glimpse of our true heart. We have seen the greatness and goodness of our Heavenly Father and tasted the love of our Savior. Read in Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He did that for us to atone for our sins. We stand by the strength that he supplies. We are clothed in his righteousness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who makes you to differ from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? A verse that is no doubt familiar to many of us. But don't pay us by it too quickly. Pause and think for a moment. Think how far-reaching this is. Any good in us is a gift. From our God. Now let me quickly move on to the second right direction of our humility. Our fellow man. We must have a heart of humility toward the world. Towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. I point you back to what we just read. 1 Corinthians 4.7 That doesn't just apply in our heart toward God in humility. But also towards men. If a world-famous artist gave you a painting as a gift, it would be ludicrous for you to parade it and take pride in it as if it were your own. We should take warning from the Pharisees, not do things as they did, 
to draw praise and attention to themselves. Let us rather seek to do things to honor and glorify our God who has been so merciful to us and point others to him. Let us rightly view ourselves compared to other men. I don't care what it is that you excel at, whatever you're the best at, whatever your greatest character quality is, there are those who I'm sure surpass you. And even if there isn't, even if you're the best in the world at something, the best that's ever lived, either it doesn't matter because it will one day burn, or the Savior of sinners lived perfectly, and you're not measuring yourself against his standard. So finally, I would start out this second section by providing a definition of humility from Jonathan Edwards. Humility is indeed one of the foundational pieces of love. We see the world consumed with attacking the other side. The assertion that one's feelings reign supreme and contradicting their feelings is equal to physically assaulting them. Let us be those who provide a contrast, living lives with a humble, loving spirit. When we are wrong, let's not be vindictive. Concerned about justifying ourselves and making sure everyone knows what the other person did. Our Savior was wrong to a greater extent than we can ever experience. He never sinned against any of the people that wronged him. Yet, we don't see him concerned about getting even. The times we do see Jesus replying with a harsh or even a vigorous response, such as when he drove the money changers out of the temple, it was for the glory and concern for the glory of the Father and for God. And lastly, you may recall the last time I was here, I brought some thoughts from Joshua and And a lot of that was driven by some of the things that we have seen in many of our churches over the last few years and the struggles that we have seen, the conflicts that there have been. How many of those conflicts could have been resolved if there had been humility? Let us in all our dealings with our brothers and sisters in Christ be humble. Let us have a spirit of humility. Someone wrongs you, if possible, cover it with love. Cover it with a spirit of humility. Our Lord washed the feet of the twelve the night that he was betrayed. He washed the feet of those who would desert him. He washed the feet of one which would deny him. He washed the feet of the one that would betray him. 
Which of our brothers or sisters has sinned against us? The way that these sinned against our Savior. The way that we have sinned against our Savior. Let us be humble enough that if our brother or sister comes and tells us wrong, which we have done, that we hear them and we make it right. One comes to us to help further our understanding as Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollos. Let us hear them and seek to learn from them. Same time, having a Berean spirit, seeing if the things that they say we find in the Bible, but yet being humble and receptive to instruction. Not saying that we should compromise the doctrines that we hold true, but I'm saying that we ought to each be learning and seeking to learn more of our God and hearing instruction in those that may have understanding where we do not. There's much more that I could say. As I noted before, a whole series could be preached on this topic. My objective today was simply to provide us a reminder and hopefully some encouragement to grow, to continue to grow in the grace of humility. I want to close with the words of a song from the Gettys. Some of you may be familiar with some of their music. But as I was preparing it, this words of this one song occurred to me. It says, My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. As summer flowers we fade and die, fame, youth, and beauty hurry by, but life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Well, it was brief. I hope it was helpful. Let us treasure and boast in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us humble ourselves before our God. and Be humble towards our fellow man. We love because he first loved us. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, our God, the creator of all the world. We have the privilege of praying to you, coming to you in the name and in the blood of Jesus Christ.
Our Lord, we confess that every time we turn around, pride is rearing its ugly head. We so quickly forget our true nature. We so quickly lose sight of who you are. And our Lord, we would pray that you will keep us to that place you first brought us when we first saw you and tasted your love, that you will keep us at the foot of the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That our trust will be in him and in him alone for all things. That in doing so, we will be humble as we ought to be. We pray that you will be with us through the remainder of this day. We thank you for it. We thank you for the blessing to worship you, to fellowship with our brethren. We pray that you will be with us through the remainder of our day and bless it to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.